Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. If I sound a little bit like I'm struggling with words this week, it's because I still have the flu and a touch of laryngitis. I'll do my best. On this edition, stem cells against HIV and biohacking. But first up, here's the news. Too many nerves are causing pain in fibromyalgia. Researchers from the Integrated Tissue Dynamics Company, based at Albany Medical College, have published in the journal Pain Medicine a paper titled Excessive Peptidergic Sensory Innovation of Cutaneous Arteriovenule Shunts in the Palmer Glabrous Skin of Fibromyalgia Patients. Implications for Widespread Deep Tissue Pain and Fatigue. They've found the presence of too many nerves in the hands and feet of people with fibromyalgia could be causing most of their symptoms. Fibromyalgia syndrome is a disabling condition causing deep tissue pain, tenderness in the hands and feet, exhaustion, sleep problems and trouble concentrating and remembering. It's very like chronic fatigue syndrome, only with a lot of extra pain. Like chronic fatigue syndrome, the physiological mechanisms that cause the symptoms have been very hard for researchers to find, so diagnosis is based on patient reports of symptoms. Twice as many women suffer from the illness as men. The paper reports that the patient had way more nerve fibres around specialised blood vessels in the palms of their hands than healthy people. Previously it had been thought that the nerve endings only regulated blood flow. But recent research has shown that the nerves also contribute to our conscious sense of touch and pain. The study was funded by Forest Laboratories and Eli Lilly. Both companies sell similar drugs that provide a degree of relief for many fibromyalgia patients. The drugs that provide relief are serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, SNRI. The team's hypothesis was that similar molecules are involved in the function of the nerve endings around blood vessels and that fibromyalgia might involve something going wrong with these molecules. The SNRI drugs may be slowing down activity in the extra nerves. The drugs are marketed as Cymbalta and Civella. The team studied biopsies sampled from the patient's palms. Under the microscope, they saw an enormous increase in sensory nerve fibres at tiny muscular valves called arteriovenule shunts. These valves in the palms of our hands and the soles of our feet regulate body temperature. When we're cold, blood is forced to bypass the skin to keep the heat inside. And when we're too warm, the valves force the blood to travel through skin capillaries to radiate heat away from the body. 
Biopsies of the palms may be used in future diagnostic tests for fibromyalgia. The extra nerves not only explain the extra pain, but why there's more pain when the weather is cold. The hands and feet also act as blood reservoirs for our body, so that blood flow can be quickly directed to our muscles when we exercise, and this blood flow is also controlled by these shunts. So if fibromyalgia interferes with the blood flow from the hands and feet to muscles in the body, this mismanagement could be causing deep muscular pain and aches. This could be leading to a buildup of lactic acid and low levels of inflammation, which causes extreme fatigue. A follow-on effect would be hyperactivity in the brain. Alterations in blood flow would contribute to non-restful sleep and what sufferers call brain fog. The data fits with previous studies showing abnormal blood flow in higher brain centres and the cerebral cortex of fibromyalgia patients. The next step is for a new study to find out if the same problem is happening in men who have fibromyalgia and hopefully we'll explain why more women suffer from the illness and lead to more effective therapies. Dream watching using big data? Japanese scientists at Kyoto's Advanced Telecommunications Research Institute's Computational Neuroscience Laboratories have combined brain blood flow scans, internet images and machine learning to identify what people are dreaming about. Their paper was titled Neural Decoding of Visual Imagery During Sleep and was published in the journal Science. The pattern of blood flow in your brain, as measured by a functional magnetic resonance imaging machine, is different for every image you look at. By comparing people's reports of what they saw when they were asleep with the fMRI patterns, the team could train a machine learning program with a web database of images to match the patterns of blood flow to images in the dreams with 60% accuracy. The team looked not at REM dreams, but at the images people saw as they fell asleep, known as hypnagogic images. This allowed them to collect several reports from the same people in the same night. Subjects were woken every time the EEG registered that they'd fallen asleep and had started seeing images. The subjects were then asked for a verbal report of their visual experience before being woken. Subjects were woken around every five minutes, and most of the time, they'd seen some dream images. Each subject was asked for about 200 reports. Words describing the objects or scenes were extracted from the dream reports and mapped to the WordNet lexical database. Images of these word associations were collected from the ImageNet database to show the subjects while they're awake. Their brains were scanned to train the software to recognise the blood flow patterns when their brains were seeing different images. They ended up training the software to match fMRI scans from the subject's brains with 20 different images that they'd seen while awake and while asleep. When they invited the subjects back into the lab, the software was able to predict what they were seeing while they were asleep and even generate a movie of images and words that could be compared against the subject's reports when they were woken. The software was correct 60% of the time, which is better than chance. The software was better at telling whether the dreamer was seeing a person or a scene, but not good at telling who the person was or what the scene was about. Functional magnetic resonance imaging scans 
don't directly show brain activity. It's a signal that's derived from blood flow changes only indirectly linked to actual neurological activity on a much slower timescale than the actual firing of nerve cells. Getting real-time activity requires measuring electrical activity in the synapses of the brain, which is a lot harder to do. This work is reminiscent of the research from 1999 where they were able to generate blurry but accurate images of a movie that a cat was watching from its brain scans. Ten years later, they obtained real-time images of what the cat was seeing by recording electrical information with electrodes at the University of California, Berkeley. In 2011, they were able to reproduce the experiment with humans, at least to the extent of decoding functional magnetic resonance image blood flow scans after the event, that is, after they'd watched some video clips, rather than in real time with electrodes. So if you've watched a YouTube clip, then they would be able to work out which YouTube clip you'd seen. Can you see what I see? Stem cells and HIV. Jeff Simons has been Chief Scientific Officer at Calamune for over four years and Adjunct Professor at the University of New South Wales. Jeff is using modified AIDS viruses to genetically change a patient's stem cells so that they help the patient become resistant to HIV when returned to their body. His project has been researched in Australia and has now been taken through to clinical trials in the USA. My understanding from reading your website is that you're engineering stem cells that will become T-cells that will be resistant to HIV infection. Yes, that's correct. The, the idea is to produce a population of cells that are protected from the effect of HIV and have an, an armament armamentarium that is able to resist infection by the virus. And in, how do they resist infection by HIV? What actually happens when HIV tries to infect? So HIV binds to a receptor, which is called the CD4 receptor, and then it also binds to a co-receptor, which is called CCR5. And what we are doing is to downregulate expression of CCR5 so that HIV can't bind to that molecule and therefore not enter the cell. We also have another um, active principle that is a fusion inhibitor that stops the virus from coalescing with the cell membrane and thereby getting into the cell. So we have two blocks to HIV infection. And how do you apply these blocks to a patient? So the blocks are put into the patient's cells. This is done outside the patient in the laboratory. We use a, uh, it's called a self-inactivating vector. It's a, a vector that introduces, is introduced into the cells and the anti-HIV elements are expressed within the cell uh, once the once the entity, which is actually a virus, integrates into the cell. So it's almost like using HIV against itself, that the vector that we have, which is a benign form of HIV, gets the construct into the cells, allows it to be expressed in the cell membrane and blocks HIV entry. 
And these stem cells are harvested from bone marrow? The stem cells are harvested from bone marrow that has been mobilised. The mobilisation means that a molecule is added to the, to the um, subject, and this is called GCSF, which is a hormone, and it causes the early stem cells to come out of the bone marrow into the peripheral blood, and then they're collected by a process called apheresis. And when the HIV virus encounters one of these T-cells, what would normally get in through one of these receptor and co-receptor cells? Yes, it would normally get in through one of the receptors on the cell surface membrane because we're down-regulating the expression of the co-receptor, then HIV won't get into those cells. So cells will be deleted that don't have the construct and cells that have the construct should over time preferentially expand and allow for a population of cells that are protected from HIV and could impact on viral load and T-cell count. And what was the second blocking mechanism? The second blocking mechanism is the so-called fusion inhibitor, which stops the virus from coalescing or, or inserting itself through the cell membrane into the cell. So it blocks that entry point. So we've got two points of inhibition. One is, is like a, a foot, which is not allowing it to bind to the co-receptor. And the second is not allowing the genetic material of the virus to be introduced because it's blocking the fusion of the virus with the cell membrane. Now, when you're blocking these parts of the T cell, are there any things that would normally be used for outside of the HIV invasion that would also be affected? No, the, the CCR5 molecule can be dispensed with. It's not essential for, uh, for normal um, f physiological function within the, within the body. Uh, the fusion inhibitor is, a, is an unnatural element that will inhibit fusion but should not impact negatively on the cell that is expressing it. We have done experiments in the laboratory to show that there is no adverse effects. And where are you up to with clinical trials? So the clinical trials, we have one underway in the United States, which is uh, actively um, uh, actively going on. Uh, we, we are um, in the process of planning for a trial in Australia, um, but that, that has not yet um, commenced. We don't have approval yet for that. And I was reading that the subjects in your clinical trials have already tried other anti-HIV treatments? Yes, they've tried other anti-HIV treatments. The, the classical antiretroviral therapy that is a combination treatment and that is, um, that, is, that is usually effective but it has side effects. There can be comorbidity, um, that is um, toxicities associated with the antiretroviral therapy and one has to take it for life on a daily basis so it's not ideal. Uh, the company called Calimune is interested in this approach. We are trying to bring it to the patients to, to have an effect and to be um, sparing of the current antiretroviral therapy, and we are committed to the process of trying to bring it to the patient population. When you're treating the stem cells to block the co-receptors and to stop fusion, is there any simple way to, to get people an image of how you do that sort of manipulation to cause that blockage? Well, we're using a, a modified HIV vector to introduce the construct into the cells, and the construct, once inside the cells, is expressed as part of the genetic machinery of the cell and goes to the cell membrane to have its effect. Jeff Simons, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That was Jeff Simons. Adjunct Professor at the University of New South Wales and Chief Scientific Officer at Calimune, working on genetically modifying stem cells with a virus so that they can become T-cells 
resistant to HIV infection in the patient. You can find out more at calimmune, C-A-L-I-M-M-U-N-E dot com. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And now for interviews from the Sydney Mini Maker Fair that was held on Sunday, November 24th at the Powerhouse Museum. The stand from Biohacker Sydney was quite impressive with a fluorescently glowing cake. I spoke first to Meow Ludo Meow Meow and afterwards to Kayo Dembski. I spoke to them separately, so there's a little overlap in the projects we discuss. My name is Meow Ludo Meow Meow. I'm from Biohack Sydney. We're part of a worldwide movement that's taking a very different approach to hacking, which is hacking DNA, the instructions of life. And what are you showing people here at the Maker Fair? Yep, so due to regulations in Australia, it's very hard for us to do any biohacking outside of a lab. So we're trying to um, garner some interest to get some uh, bigger group of people together to do, uh, to get some lab space. What we've got today is mainly technology. So our approach has been if we can't hack DNA outside of the lab, we're going to build technology that allows us to do it once we do. So we've got um, a qPCR. It does qualitative and quantitative testing of DNA. The cheapest commercial qPCR is $30,000. We've built one for under three hundred, and we've tapped into... It's a low-hanging fruit. There's a couple of other groups around the world which have done something kind of similar, but it goes to show you that if you have the know-how and the will, you can save yourself a lot of money. It makes it quite accessible. And PCR is for multiplying DNA. That's right. So it's a polymerase chain reaction. Um, it is the workhorse of the genetics industry. It, uh, utilizing that, you can photocopy small sections of DNA. You can put brackets on there basically amplify genes of interest that you want to work with into such great numbers that you can start doing stuff like putting them inside bacteria and making them do things that they wouldn't generally do. Is that the main thing you're showing people here? That's a qPCR. We have fluorescent stuff. Biologists love things that <laughs> glow and fluoresce under the UV lights. Um, it's actually really incredibly important to research, have um, fluorescent molecules and fluorescent compounds. And we've got another device that we're working on, which is a prototype for sampling m- microbes in the upper atmosphere. So what is it that you've got that's glowing here? <laughs> this, is, this is fluorescein. Um, fluorescein is one of the most fluorescent compounds known to man. It's, um, they generally use it in the medical industry to look at cuts in people's eyes. We've got B12, which is a fluorescent compound. So we try and cook it into cakes and candy and stuff. <laughs> but what, our, our hope is that we'll end up um, using green fluorescent pro- protein. It's not actually approved for human consumption, but there was um, some people recently that did a green fluorescent protein yogurt. Just a word of warning, actually. There's... There's, um, people have said it may actually be carcinogenic, which is, yeah. <laughs> Wasn't there also uh, glowing ice cream? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's the glowing ice cream. There's um, the glowing zebra fish. There's a site, glowingsushi.com, that does all <laughs> sorts of glowing glowing foods. But, um, yeah, eat it at your own risk. <laughs> I'm sorry, what was the next thing you went on to? Uh, yeah, so we're... Um, wanting to do some sampling of microbes from the upper atmosphere. We just saw this as a really accessible project. It's uh, going down the same vein as people who've done the upper atmosphere photography using weather balloons with eskies and cameras. So we said, okay, how cool would it be if we could do some um, sampling of microbes up there? And we had a look at what had been done already, and there there was only a very few amount of papers, and two of which concluded that there were 
microbes of extraterrestrial origin. I reported on that. Oh, did you? And we're, we're very skeptical, but we um, would like to see our own data. So um, it hasn't been done in Australia, my, um, air sampling. So our aim is to get this device that will take, uh, be run by an Arduino, open and close some servos at um, around 32 Ks and above is what we're looking at. Um, and the air is very thin up there, so we have to have some electronics that will suck lots of air across these filters. Take the filters back and sequence them and see what's, see what's around. See if um, we can confirm or deny or add, add evidence on one side of the, of the fence for whether they are of uh, extraterrestrial origin. If there are microbes up there that yeah. normally shouldn't live up there, what alternate method of them getting up there might there be other than them coming from space? Yeah, so we've discussed this a lot, is how do they get up there and how long do they stay up there? And we were saying there's a lot of natural events that could cause it, like cyclones, typhoons, are rockets going through there. We're talking about commercial airliners, but they're often much lower than where, what we're looking at. One of the interesting things we found in our research is that um, when, part of, when, when the size of microbes was measured up there, there's an unusual kind of deviation from what you'd expect around the microbe size that keeps them up there much, much longer than they should. So they might, might have evolved somehow to stay up there longer. Um, it may just be a, a product of their size that for some reason they stay up there much longer. Yes, and also the other one, meteorite impacts could be a huge thing. So they may have been up there for really, really huge amounts of time. So it would have been really important when life was first forming on Earth. So you know, 4.1 million years ago in the late heavy bombardment, there's been evidence for life. If that was being chucked up continuously, there's rates for high amounts of evolution. In fact, the guy that you want to speak to about the... Yes. Kayo, would you like to talk about your device for a bit for Ian's... For a science podcast. Yeah, sure. Sure. Thank you, Meow. You're welcome, Ian. Yeah, uh, sorry, what's your name? Uh, my name is Kayo, Kayo Dembski, and um, yeah. So, so yeah. Which, 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 what's the project you want to talk about? Uh, so my project is a um, high-altitude atmospheric sampler. Um, basically, it's a hack together esky. Inside, we've got a series of um, PVC pipes that we're going to have uh, valves attached to and a series of um, successive filters and air pump to draw air through it. And hopefully we're going to um, try to do is to attach it to some uh, helium balloons, launch up to the atmosphere about 30 to 50 kilometres up, and see if we can collect any biological matter up there, basically. Wow. And are you going to be radio stuff back, or are you just going to be recovering it with GPS? Um, so we'll have a GPS tracker inside it. Um, you, there are programs you can use that will um, minimise your search radius down to about two to three kilometres. Hopefully we'll actually want to actually collect the physical biological matter and then send it off for sequencing and hopefully that'll identify what um, bacteria, fungal spores and viruses are, are up there. And will you be publishing your results in a journal? We hope so. We, hope, we, we certainly hope to. Um, we're designing it in the um, most rigorous uh, scientific manner that, um, that we can with including appropriate controls, um, various um, sterility measures, things like that. And yeah, we certainly hope to uh, publish it um, potentially in a journal of atmospheric biology, uh, which is a journal specifically tailored to this sort of uh, this sort of research. And is there anything else here that you've got on your biohack display that you want to tell me about? Um, so that's my that that, that, that's that one in particular is, is, is my project. Um, I know over there we have a, um, a PCR um, project, which is uh, Matt's um, baby at the moment. What's under the microscopes? And under the microscope, so there we have uh, some uh, human cheek cells that you can look through, and we're trying to uh, tailor the uh, microscope for what's called a dark field view. So most most microscopes shine a light through it, and um, it just makes it very bright. And you can only see the uh, the outer the outer edges of things. Whereas a dark field microscope are usually much more expensive, but they allow you to see your finer details. 
and we were basically using an iPhone light and um, just putting it at the right angle and for a few extra dollars or any, um, any LED light, you can make your own dark field microscope and save about 10 grand. And with the glow-in-the-dark stuff, yes. do you have plans for any particular things that will glow? Uh, so uh, Nicole's made a glow-in-the-dark cake. So um, using some B vitamins um, added into the actual um, icing of the cake, uh, she's been able to make uh, various parts of the, um, the cake fluoresce under, under a black light. The actual the, the other fluorescent dye that we have, fluorescent, is um, another dye. She's used as a marker. Uh, I know one of my mates, he um, uh, had to go to the eye surgeon and he had a scratch in his eye, and they used that to uh, identify exactly where the uh, scratch was, uh, make it stand out a bit more. It's all uh, very safe and um, not toxic at all. So Awesome. And if people want to look for Biohack or want to join Biohack online, yes. where should they look? Uh, so we, um, we have a website. We hope to get the website back up and running at the moment. Um, You're on Twitter? Uh, we have a Facebook page at the moment as well, so um, you shouldn't should be able to find us, um, find us through Facebook. Excellent. So Biohack on Biohack Sydney? Yeah, Biohack, Biohack Sydney, yeah. Biohack Sid. So, Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. You can find Biohack Sid on Facebook. And look to diffusionradio.com for my gallery of photos from the fair. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. And please like the Facebook page and leave a comment. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and 2HHH in Hornsby, Karingai. We're syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Diffusion needs funding. Please contact me at science at diffusionradio.com if you'd like to sponsor the show, to suggest a business model, help with applying for grants, or look for the donate button on diffusionradio.com to contribute to the costs of producing the podcast. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.